Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, I'm Kim Droves, in for Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. This weekend, you'll have an opportunity to meet WABE's own Jim Burris at the Georgia Storytelling Roadshow. The traveling series takes place in a pop-up outdoor theater and showcases a collection of short films that spotlight 10 Georgia storytellers, all of whom share their personal takes on what it's like navigating life with a developmental disability. But first... A psychoanalytical essay seems an unusual choice for a Broadway musical, but James Lapine and Stephen Sondheim drew upon just that to create their Tony Award-winning musical, Into the Woods. This weekend, City Springs Theatre Company is beginning their return to live performance with this musical in the Byers Theatre of the Sandy Springs Performing Arts Center. Atlanta's own Broadway favorite, Terry Burrell, plays the role of the witch, And she, along with the show's director, Casey Grogan-Wallace, joined City Lights host Lois Reitzes recently over Zoom. Lois began their conversation by asking Grogan-Wallace why this production is ideal for reopening the theater. Well, I I believe that this uh, was a wonderful choice because with the pandemic, we all have been put into these different places and we've had to like really look at ourselves and examine ourselves and find ourselves. And what I tend to find completely parallel with a lot of these characters is they're the same types of things happening with them. They're having to find themselves and they're having to make decisions based on what their current circumstance tells them and what will be better for their future. So it's pretty cool how the things that happened in our real lives kind of line up with how these characters have to find themselves as well. So this is just like the perfect show, in my opinion, to uh, help us all, you know, get that sense of normal back. Oh, it is such a fantastic show. The inspiration for Into the Woods was a psychoanalytic essay published as a book by Bruno Bettelheim entitled The Uses of Enchantment. He addressed how children use fairy tales. Casey, would you give us a synopsis of the book for the musical? Well, uh, we find that these characters that we know so well, Cinderella, Jack, with Jack and the Beanstalk, and the baker and his wife, 
we get to meet these characters where we know their stories. We get to see their growth and their determination trying to find and uh, make things happen for what they want to happen because of their longing and their desire to have more or to be more. So the story starts with these characters wishing and it's propelled by this character of the witch. And the witch comes in with basically the ingredients to keep everybody in this cycle of trying to find, to make something happen. So spoiler alert, if you see it that way, the characters, they all come together, they get what they want, but then we find that the characters, like most of us, once you get what you want, there's still more that you want. And so that's where the characters, they finally realize that, you know, life is life and everything is always changing. And then they're hit with something else, something greater, something that they don't understand. They've never had to experience and they have to overcome this together. And it's a nice little story of them trying to defeat things like we do in our lives. And we have to use everything that we know to use. We have to think, we have to collaborate with people we probably would never work with just to make things happen. It is an illustration of how children learn to process scary things from classic fairy tales. And the scariest things are abandonment and death. And I think one of the most beautiful moments in this musical is the song, No One Is Alone. Sometimes people leave you Halfway through the wood Others may deceive you You decide what's good You decide alone But no one is alone I wish I know The song You Are Not Alone, it has always resonated with me. I love this musical since I was a little girl, and it's so awesome that I get to direct this one. But that song particularly, it it really, it opens and creates this room for people to know that regardless of your circumstance, regardless of who has left you in your life, regardless of the things you've been through, nobody is ever truly alone in their situation. Somebody is always there in some capacity. Somebody is there to lean on. Someone is to offer a hand for you to get help or just someone to talk to. And I love how we see Little Red no longer with her mother or her grandmother there for her. And she's left with Cinderella in this moment. And Cinderella just basically without anybody herself. Now she's having to teach this lesson of hey, you're okay. You're not by yourself in this situation. Because Cinderella herself has been in her mind probably alone with all of the things she's dealt with. So now she's teaching Little Red. And then you turn around and you look at the baker and Jack. And Jack is now without his mother. And the baker is without his wife. And they have to lean on each other. So the baker's trying to encourage Jack that you always have somebody regardless of your situation. And that song is so beautiful. And I feel like it resonates a lot, especially after this pandemic with a lot of us, because nobody is alone. We are all in in whatever our circumstance, 
we are in this together and we can all get through it. We just have to be together, work together and be motivated to keep going. Yeah, thinking about that aspect of consoling children that they need not fear being abandoned and death is something natural and will happen to someone you love. I see why you believe this is so meaningful for us. Coming out of isolation, as so many people were alone and had no idea when we'd be able to see each other again. Mm -hmm. Terry, you were living in New York when this show premiered on Broadway, and you understudied for the roles of both wicked stepsisters. Bernadette Peters was nominated for a Drama Desk Award for her role as the witch. I thought she deserved a tourney that year. Do you channel Bernadette Peters as the witch while making the role your own, of course? Well, you know, I would not have been able to play the role of the witch before now. And what I channel, I think, is her focus her ability to focus and to focus throughout the entire show. You know, I didn't watch her personal kind of process and her rehearsal, but I was telling the story of watching the powers that be ask her to do something one day in rehearsal. It was a tech rehearsal. And they asked her to do it three times. And there was never a time when she had an attitude, when she said, I'm tired, when she sucked her teeth, she gave it full energy. And I remember sitting out there watching her and thinking, I have just learned a life lesson here. I've just looked at somebody like I was looking at a master class. And so the one thing I noticed about her was how she lost herself in the character. I believed her. And that's what I aim for every time I do it. I want people to really believe that it's me, that forget about Terry on stage, that I'm really am the witch and that I am really telegraphing to the audience and to my cast members that I'm telling the truth when I say anything. Oh, I absolutely adore her work. And hearing you tell this story just affirms what I've heard, that she is a lovely person, lovely to work with, and quite humble. It's so heartening when our heroes, or sheroes in this case, turn out to be good people too, isn't it? That's not always the case. No, but thank God that's been rare, a rare experience for me. (laughs) But she really is quite lovely and friendly and funny. Let's talk about the score with Sondheim's music and Lapine's lyrics. Casey, this is for you as well as Terry. What other songs are pivotal to this story within Into the Woods? I believe that um, the children will listen. Those moments, they're so important. People don't really pay attention to how important it is at that developmental stage of a child's life to make sure that they have that foundation, but at the same time to understand that the kid is still going to do what the kid wants to do. And I think the witch, she's wrestling with understanding that herself. That's just my take on it. And understanding that regardless of what we invest in our kids, 
If they have a foundation, they'll be fine. Far off kingdom. There lived a young maiden. Careful the things young you lad. say. Young child is Careful the things you do. Children will see. the line that Little Red has when they're talking about their battle with the giant that's about to happen. And she's talking about how her mother and her grandmother would not be happy with this decision because the giant is a person too. That foundation was established. Red is, she's sassy. She's given all types of little energy the whole show, but she had enough foundation to know this isn't necessarily right, even though this might be what we have to do. I'm not sure. I don't think my mom would be fine with this but because she had enough foundation. And so I think Children Will Listen is, is a, a pivotal, one of those songs that you just, you're going to walk out humming. And another one that really just makes me just every time I, I have goosebumps is No More between the baker and his father. No more tests. Comes the day you say what for, please. No more. They disappoint, they disappear, they die, but they don't. What? They disappoint, in turn I fear, forgive though they won't. No more riddles. No more jests. No more curses you can't undo. Left by fathers you never knew. No more quests, no more feelings, time to shut the door, just no more. I love the, the lesson and it, it, it ties into the whole concept of what Children Will Listen is trying to convey. The baker is trying to understand, like, why? Why do I have to go through these things? And I'm tired of it. Whereas his father is trying to explain to him, people make mistakes. This is who we Mm -hmm. are. We're human. And know that things are going to happen. We just need to be open to change and willing to do whatever we need to do to make sure someone else is being helped. So those are mine. (laughs) Terry, your role is central to the story. What song is most important to you? The very last song of Act Two for the Witch, The Last Midnight. Have to get your prince, have to get your cow, have to get your wish, doesn't matter how, anyway, it doesn't matter now. It's the last midnight, it's the Nothing but a vast midnight. Everybody smashed flat. Nothing we can do. Not exactly true. We can always give her the boy. No, no, of course it really matters. It's no blame. Somebody to blame. Fine, if that's the thing you enjoy, placing the blame. If that's the aim, give me the blame. 
Just give me the boy. No. No. You're so nice. The witch is seen, yes, as evil, but she really isn't. And we can remember those times when women were wise and they knew how to use herbs and cure. And they were seen as witches and burned at the stake. And she says, I'm the hitch. I'm what no one believes. I'm the witch. I think in that moment, she just lets them all have it. She just can't stand to be around these people anymore who lie, who steal, and who justify it. You know, even though they accuse each other of doing wrong, of being immoral, they all in their way are immoral. And she says, you know what? I'm willing to give up being beautiful again, physically, to just live my truth. So you know what, mom? Punish me again. Give me claws and a hunch just away from this bunch. I want to get away from the gloom, the doom, and the boom. That is one of the most powerful moments for me in that show. Into the Woods star Terry Burrell and director Casey Grogan Wallace discussing their love for the score of Into the Woods with City Lights host Lois Reitzes. You can catch City Springs Theater Company's musical starting this weekend in the newly reopened Byers Theater of the Sandy Springs Performing Arts Center. You can learn more on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE Atlanta. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. How about some art combined with community and activism? Treasure Maps, the Georgia Storytelling Roadshow, is a series of pop-up outdoor theaters across the state of Georgia. The events consist of a collection of short films that showcase 10 Georgia storytellers, all of whom share their personal takes on what it's like to navigate life with a developmental disability. The Atlanta Stop on the Road show is happening this Saturday, July 10th at Legacy Park in Decatur, and WABE's own Jim Burris will co-host the event. Joining us now via Zoom are LaTanya Harris, a Roadshow volunteer and mother of one of the featured storytellers, and Shannon Turner, founder and creative director of Story Muse, the company that partnered with the Georgia Department of Developmental Disabilities to produce the Treasure Maps project. LaTanya and Shannon, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Very pleased to meet both of you, and thank you for joining us. Shannon, will you start us off by explaining how the Treasure Maps project came to be? Absolutely. My company, uh, Story Muse, is delighted to be a part of the project, but there are so many other entities who are coming together to make this work happen. 
So the Georgia Council on Developmental Disabilities is a wonderful advocacy organization that has been endeavoring to make storytelling a part of its efforts for several years now. And so the storytelling project started in 2018. We traveled the state collecting stories and those stories walk right into legislators' offices so that we could help educate those folks to say, look, this is your constituent. Please make better decisions on their behalf. Oh, wow. It was a a valiant effort and it did a lot of good. As I was traveling the state in that way, though, telling one story at a time, I started to see trends across those stories. So this year, we wanted to do something that would be COVID safe. So we proposed to do the roadshow, something that we could film the stories outside and socially distance, and then also produce them and show them in a way that was outside and socially distanced. So we went on the road, we collected these 10 stories, we put them together into this beautiful show that happens. You know, I like say each of these 10 storytellers, their stories is just like a beautiful manifestation of that teller. And the the filmmakers have had so much fun making those stories and kind of experimenting with genre. So we have a guy who loves to cook. So we ended up making like a cooking show, like you might see on the Travel Channel or the Food Network. Oh, fun. And then we have another young woman who is a jewelry maker. And so watching her story is kind of like watching something on HGTV. But in the same way that all of those stories are so unique and connected to the teller, each of these shows has become a beautiful manifestation of that community. And Atlanta is our final stop. We'll wrap it up on Saturday after we've been to Columbus and Macon and Savannah, Athens and Dahlonega. What a run you've had. Yes. And amongst other reasons, it's a great reason to get out there and get a chance to lay eyes on WABE's own Jim Burris. He's going to be co-hosting the event. I have a crush. I I hear a fan. (laughs) He's a fellow ginger. Yes. And along with Jim, we have Bethany Stevens, who's a wonderful advocate in the community. I'm just planning on geeking out as I am up there on the stage with both Jim and Bethany Saturday night. Well, that's fantastic. LaTanya, what were your original thoughts when they approached you about your daughter, Faith, participating in the project? I thought, oh, this is going to be awesome. You know, Faith loves to tell her story as only Faith can do. And so we just thought that it would be an awesome way to get her out in the community And I love to volunteer when I can to support our young adults and persons with disabilities just overall. So I was really excited when we were introduced to this project. And it has been such an amazing experience for Faith, for my family overall. With our story, my oldest daughter, was Faith's sister had an opportunity to be a part of the project as well. And so it was really a family affair. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, since Faith is not here at the moment to share her story, would you tell us a little bit about Faith? Faith is this amazing 21-year-old who loves life. When she walks into a room, you know she has arrived because she has lit it up. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. She is one of the happiest people I've ever met. And she wakes up like that. She goes to bed like that. Anyone that has ever encountered Faith has encountered this amazing individual who will ask you how you're doing and stop to listen. 
to make sure that she understood how you're doing. And if you're not doing well, to make sure that you know that you're loved. We call Faith the Walmart greeter affectionately (laughs) because she's never met a stranger. And she's just this amazing person that just brings light. And so that's a part of my drive because I want her to always have a space in our community. Right. And usually that doesn't happen after, you know, our young adults exit school, then there isn't a lot of spaces for them to be in. That's been my passion, my heart, my push, my life, just to make sure that she has a space when she exits school next spring. So that's our story. And she's just this, I won't be put in a box kind of woman. I I just follow Faith's lead and wherever she leads us, that's where we go. Sounds like we could all use a little faith in our corner. Yes. Shannon, you mentioned a couple of the different themes that are going on, Mm -hmm. the craft maker and the cooking show. Can you tell us a little more about some of the other presentations that people will see if they can make it to the event on Saturday? So we also have a young man who has autism, who he has an amazing turn of phrase. He's so clever with his words and he's a brilliant artist. And so we helped him turn his story into a children's book. He reads his story as if he were performing to children at the library. Our young man from Athens is a professional Elvis. Oh, he doesn't like to say impersonator, um, Elvis impression artist. His story is really fun to watch. He made us every single time we did a take with him, we had to do the countdown with the da-da-da, da-da-da, you know, that Elvis music where Elvis would come onto the stage every single time we had to do that. It was so fun. Does he sing as well? He does. Oh my God. So I'm really glad though, that Latanya brought up this phenomenon that she's trying to get out in front of with her daughter, Faith, which is what we call in the business, the school to couch pipeline. So a lot of folks find that there's this total drop-off in services after they graduate from high school. So the Medicaid waiver is this really important legislative agenda behind the work that we're doing. We want people to understand the importance of the Medicaid waiver, why we should have it, why we need to fund it. Is this waiver Georgia specific? It's not, but interestingly, the Supreme Court case that started it started here in Georgia. But now it's a national structure. But sadly, there are 7,000 Georgians on the waiting list for the Medicaid waiver. Oh, that is problematic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Deeply problematic. But we're trying to help people understand all of the things that the Medicaid waiver can support in a person's life. So that young woman who does the HGTV style show with her jewelry making, she has a caregiver who coaches her in her work helps her get out into the community, does all kinds of things that helps her live independently. And a Medicaid waiver is called a waiver because the first line of defense in the way our society works is to put people into an institution. So the waiver is waving them out of that system and putting them into community. Basically, we want people to understand the importance of these waivers, how they function, and why we need to be encouraging our legislators to continue to support them. Yeah, continued visibility and being part of a community is everything. What can individuals do if they want to support your project? 
Well, first of all, just come out and enjoy this rocking good time that we're going to put on Saturday night. <laughs> I mean, I, I really think that for a lot of people, they haven't had so many opportunities yet to come out and be together with community post-pandemic. So we really do want you to come out and enjoy the food trucks, the art vendors, the seed and feed marching abominable band is going to be there. Oh, they're <laughs> amazing. I know. I love and them. So, That's you know, I, I really do want people to see this as a celebration of community, a celebration of an opportunity to come out after the pandemic. We have uh, pieces that are about how you can stay connected with the Medicaid waiver advocacy. And the next thing I want to say is how important it is to just make a relationship with your legislators. I don't think people understand how fundamentally important that is to do. At the end of the day, it's two clicks on Google and there's your legislator. And you just call that person up or email them and you say, look, this is what's important to me. And this is why I think you should be in my camp on this. And they will hear you. If they don't, then you should tell them why they should lose their job. It's really that easy. <laughs> They get their information from us. Their decisions are made from those who contact them and share those things that are important to us. A lot of people, when they don't live in our world, they don't know the importance of having a support person to escort you to Costco to get your favorite meal. You know, they don't know the importance of having someone to transport you to these different places so you can access your community. One thing that I was wondering if either of you could speak to, just as far as being a community member who maybe hasn't had that much exposure to people with developmental disabilities, do you have any suggestions on, say it's me, how I can communicate better with someone who has developmental disabilities if they are looking to make a connection? As a parent, to hear someone actually want to do that just makes my heart full. If you have things that you can make available to persons with disabilities, if you're open to having people with disabilities come into the space and be able to be as they are, would be absolutely wonderful. Attending things like what we're doing this weekend, actually joining in when you see those emails, employers thinking outside of the box of how these amazing individuals can contribute to your organization. I'm a transition specialist by trade, and I just see all of these opportunities that I think we miss because the person has this disability, right? But we don't look at the possibilities that they bring, the abilities, the light that they bring to the table. Mm. That's very well said. Latanya, can you share a little more about that light that Faith has and the story that she shares for the Treasure Maps project? She tells the story about learning how to walk. So her father was deployed. Me being who I am, I was like, okay, what do I need to give you so you'll come back to us the same way we sent you over there, right? Oh. And... At that point in time, Faith wasn't walking. And so... How old is she here? She is three. She's three. And so our pledge to him was if he came back, Faith would walk to him when he got off the plane. We shared that with our team and the physical therapist, who was absolutely amazing. 
every spare moment she had, she would work with Faith. And Faith walked to her dad when he got off the plane that following year when he came home from being in the Middle East. It was really, really exciting to see her tell that story. And Faith is, like I said earlier, one of those people who refuses to be put in a box. She's going to do it like she wants to do it. I have been amazed at the perseverance that this young woman has exhibited. And now she's a Special Olympian, and she has four or five gold medals. I have to look at it. Uh, She's competed at state at least four times. What is her specialty? She does track and field. She does the standing long jump. We had her in the actual 100 meter. But she loves her fans. So she would stop and wave at her fans Mm -hmm. opposed to continuing to run. (laughs) So we just gave up on the track piece because Faith is like, wait, there are all of my people right there. I need to stop and wave and, you know, let everybody know that I'm on the track. Oh, my God. We had to stop the track piece, but she's always competed in the standing long jump and made it to state and medaled. So, yeah, that's who she is. And that's our family. Well, you can hear the joy in your voice when you tell Faith's story. And Shannon, I was wondering, since this is what you do for a living, can you speak for a moment just to the importance of being able to share your story? Oh, gosh, (laughs) how long have you got? (laughs) I mean, we live in a world where some will say that we have an empathy deficit. We, you know, we are literally building walls around ourselves, unfortunately. One of my favorite quotes says that the shortest distance between two human hearts is a story. Uh, Unfortunately, we have all of these ways that our stories are being stolen away from us and sold back through capitalist structures. And a lot of people, the first thing they'll say is I'm not a good storyteller, which is so unfortunate because it is our most ancient skill. You know, we used to sit around and talk to each other at the end of the night around campfires and on porches. And it wasn't judged. It was just how we communicate. It's how we have transported our values from one generation to the next. I really find that this work is so crucial. It is not short-term technology. It It is definitely something that takes time and an investment. But when people do it, they get longer term dividends. I'm so proud of the Georgia Council on Developmental Disabilities for making this long-term investment in the storytelling project because I do think it is helpful. The reason why Treasure Maps is called Treasure Maps is because I do life maps with people as a story cultivation and discovery technique. Oh, what are life maps? It's basically, it's very simple. I just make sure that every participant has a large piece of paper and multiple colors of markers. And we go through a process of drawing out a map of their life. And a lot of times people find that some of the common stories that they think about all the time fall away, or maybe they're still on that map, but there are new stories that they haven't thought about in forever that come up on that map. And that becomes like the really juicy thing that they want to work on developing. When that workshop is coming to a close, we always do this gallery walk where everybody goes around and looks at everybody else's life map. And there's always this quiet, almost sacred moment where people are really taking in each other's maps. And I think about that all the time. And the time when, you know, somebody cuts me off in traffic and I want to, you know, show them some part of my hand or somebody makes me really angry on the internet. And I just think, what if their life map could become revealed to me? 
what if I could connect with their stories? And that's what we're doing just very slowly and intentionally. Shannon Turner, Creative Director of Story Muse, and LaTanya Harris, Transition Specialist, Volunteer, and Faith Mom. Treasure Maps, the Georgia Storytelling Roadshow, is happening this Saturday at Legacy Park in Decatur. WABE's Jim Burris will be co-hosting the event, and you can learn more on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Welcome back to City Lights. I'm Kim Droves in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for joining us. We don't usually associate Chinese people with the American Deep South, but a new PBS documentary explores this unspoken connection. Far East Deep South is a gripping story of Chinese immigrants in Mississippi told through the lens of one family's history. Recently, City Lights host Lois Reitzes spoke with the documentary's filmmakers, Larissa Lamb and Baldwin Chu via Zoom. They began their conversation with Chu explaining when he first became interested in learning more about his father's and grandfather's histories. I recall asking a long time ago when I was a kid, but then I kind of forgot about it. And it really wasn't until the birth of my daughter when I saw how my father would hold my daughter. And that would be the first time I'd ever seen in our family, immediate family, a a grandchild and grandfather relationship. And that's when I really started wondering, hmm, why didn't I ever have that relationship with my my grandfather? Why did I never know him? And I think that really started prompting um, our desire to really try to find out where our family history and lineage came from. I always thought it strange before Baldwin and I got married, when I asked about his father's side of the family, he didn't know anything. And when we were finding, you know, guests for our guest lists for our wedding, I said, you want to invite anybody on your father's side? And he said, no, I, I don't have any relatives that I know of. <laughs> and so uh, I think hopefully that also sparked him thinking about uh, wh- where that other side of the family was, because I know I always wondered. <laughs> sure. Well, when you traveled to Mississippi to find out more about your grandfather, Casey Lou, what was your father's initial reaction when you told him you wanted to film this experience? Uh, well, I think he, he thought we were filming just for a family home video. He had no idea we were trying to make a movie out of it. And we didn't know we were making a movie at the time. And we, we honestly thought we were just going to take a vacation. I, you know, grew up in Southern California, Baldwin grew up in Northern California. I literally thought we were going to go to Mississippi and find two Chinese men buried there, um, Baldwin's grandfather and great grandfather. And we call it a day, have a nice family vacation, come home. Uh, We were really filming because, you know, at like any good family vacation, you just film all those family (laughs) moments, especially when you have a little daughter. And we had no idea until we started uncovering the history and visiting the museum, the Chinese museum in the middle of Mississippi, and all these amazing, you know, discoveries started happening that we thought there was more of a story that needed to be told. Yeah, that was fascinating. Uh, The entire museum in Mississippi filled with Chinese memorabilia and archives from those who had lived there. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It was a treasure trove of history that most of us never get to learn about in our history books. And, you know, I really felt like, you know, we all learn about segregation and we all learn about the, the American South as we study American history growing up. But nowhere do we really learn about uh, the Chinese being impacted by segregation and the Chinese having a, a presence and contributions in the South. Well, it is such an ugly mark on American history about the Chinese Exclusion Act, and we will get to that, but all the more reason to bring to light the situation that you do in your film. What was it like seeing your father discover his father's Bible for the first time, Baldwin? Yeah, I... I don't think any of us was prepared for that. Um, it could have been any artifact. It could have been, it could have been a dictionary, you know. Um, but the fact that it was a Bible, I think, um, it held significant value to my father, especially you know, being a man of faith. I think it resonated that hey, maybe there's an opportunity that that he would see his father at some point again. But at the same time, I think it was a very sad. It was, you know, he likes to call it mixed memories, right? Mixed, he's got mixed feelings. He was, he was sad and elated at the same time. Yes. Larissa, I read that you previously directed a short documentary, Finding Cleveland. How is that the basis for this documentary, Far East, Deep South? Well, Finding Cleveland was about our first trip to Cleveland, Mississippi, not Ohio. Everybody in Ohio always thinks it's about us. No, <laughs> there's a Cleveland, Mississippi, which is where the Chinese, um, the Mississippi Delta Chinese Heritage Museum is. And, and that story is actually now embedded, you know, in Far East, Deep South. And really, you know, all we had was that first trip and all those discoveries. And we, we made a 14 minute short film about five years ago, and um, it had a great response. Um, and as a result of us kind of touring the country back in those days when we can actually watch movies together in in venues in a, in a large in a room we had so many people ask us questions and we had questions about the family and more about the history that we decided to dive deeper and you know here we are uh, a few years later and we have far east Steve south kind of exploring more of those that history uh, both family and also um broadly the history of the American South and the Chinese contributions to it. You, you kind of like to call Far East Deep South like a prequel and the sequel to Finding Cleveland, along with Finding Cleveland retold <laughs> in the middle. <laughs> hey, isn't that how Star Wars started? <laughs> yes, that's we, true. That's a very good comparison. We, we packed the entire trilogy in one movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you didn't have John Williams, but I have to compliment you on the music. It's yes. fabulous. Not only the original music, which I saw you credited the composers, but that um, blues guitar when you're driving, who chose that? Me. I, I My background is in music. Um, I'm also a music composer and um, songwriter, you know, music artist. In fact, my song, This Road, is at, a, is at the end credits. And, and Baldwin's a rapper, and his song is featured in our Chinatown scene. Chinatown. Okay, if you still don't know what I'm talking about, I'm a woman, hold my ma, because I'm ABC, and 
an American-born Chinese. Not from overseas, and I'm not Japanese, Vietnamese, Filipino, Thai, or Korean. People get us confused at times because they think we're all the same, but we're not. But I had very much a hands-on experience with the music. We did not hire a music supervisor because I pretty much took those reins. And uh, you mentioned John Williams, and our composer Nathan Wong has actually worked with John Williams in the past, as well as a, a whole array of, of composers such as Hans Zimmer. And he, in his own right, um, is a fabulous composer um, who has two Emmy Awards and uh, recently scored uh, the big international hit, Detective Chinatown 3, um, in addition to so many other movies. Um, so we're really, really grateful that he agreed to, to do our film and contribute his talents. Well, it is one fantastic aspect of the film. Far too few people know about the Chinese Exclusion Act. Will you describe it? Yeah, well, basically, in 1882, there was a law enacted, um, the Chinese Exclusion Act, that basically um, said that Chinese could not come to the country as laborers. They could not come to the country unless they were exempted um, as merchants, uh, diplomats, scholars, or tourists. And they basically uh, also uh, did not allow Chinese to become citizens. Um, so it was, in effect, a law that was uh, that came out of the uh, a lot of the workers post railroad transcontinental railroad completion saying we don't want Chinese workers taking our jobs so this is our way to prevent them to come coming in it was also a way to try to get the ones that were here to leave uh, with all the anti-Chinese sentiment which eventually led to anti-Asian in general sentiment um, the hope of the Chinese Exclusion Act was that not only would you restrict the immigration of Chinese coming into the country, but the ones that were currently here would feel so much pressure and that they would go back home, go back to China, um, as opposed to staying home here. And it's the only law that has been passed by Congress that was race-based um, in terms of targeting at a group. You know, most of the laws, even though there's a lot of similar rancor, you know, in current times, it's it's by nationality, by country of origin. But this one was, it didn't matter if you were born in Australia or born in Africa, if, as long as you were Chinese eth ethnically, you were not allowed to become a citizen. You were not allowed to come to the country. So really, it's similar to what African Americans had before the Civil War, except you weren't owned. Yeah, there. Well, yes. I mean, there, there's there's certainly um, you know oppression takes a lot of different forms. Discrimination takes a lot of forms for sure. And Baldwin had no idea that the Chinese Exclusion Act actually impacted, impacted his family directly until we went on this journey with this documentary. I think that was one of the surprising revelations. We thought we were going to be just exploring the history of um, the Chinese in the South. And lo and behold, we find ourselves at the National Archives uncovering um, all this history. And unfortunately, the reality is that uh, the Chinese Exclusion Act did exactly what it was supposed to do. It, it worked, unfortunately. It, it prevented uh, Chinese from coming in. And a lot of the Chinese that were here in this country uh, went back to China. Um, they, they couldn't find wives here because there were other subsequent laws um, that prevented women from coming over. So of course, if you can't 
raise a family here, um, the whole point of the, the Chinese Exclusion Act was so that you don't increase your population here in, in the United States by raising a family. So that would, for, for in order to raise a family, you'd have to go back to China and start a family there. And of course, hopefully you don't come back. And in the majority of the cases, they did not. And, and as a result, as you see in the film, um, we find out that Baldwin's family had been separated for generations, um, largely due to the Chinese Exclusion Act. Correct. Was your grandfather not allowed to reconnect with his wife and child in China? He was able to go back and forth to visit his family in China. And his intention was to eventually petition and get some sort of waiver or some sort of um, allowance to bring his wife and child over. And he would use the status of a merchant as opposed to a laborer to justify that um, his wife and his child could eventually come over. Unfortunately, he passed away um, too soon to be able to do that. And that was also the way my great-grandfather was able to get my grandfather and my great-grandmother, does that make sense? Yeah, To come to the country. It's like there's a large family yeah. tree in our film. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately, you know, the Chinese Exclusion Act, you know, it spanned multiple generations. So not only did my great-grandfather have to go to China, get a wife, have a kid, and petition to come back. My grandfather had to do the same thing as well. And they were both born here. Well, there's a spoiler, spoiler alert. right there. Uh, <laughs> one of them was born them here. One of them was born here, and by, the other one was not. By derivative birthright citizenship, um, his grandfather was an American citizen because his great-grandfather was uh, an American, was born here. Um, and sadly, if Baldwin's, fa Baldwin's father technically should have been a, a entitled to American citizenship, but because at that time, it was uh, the lineage went to the, the father's side of the family because his because Baldwin's grandfather passed away before Baldwin's dad could come into the country. Follow us here. I know this is all this like back <laughs> and forth. Like imagine a map. Um, his father didn't have um, his Baldwin's grandfather was no longer alive to be able to prove the citizenship for his father. So even from a gender, you know, standpoint, there was obviously a lot of favoritism to the the male side of the family and the patriarchal lineage that is is now changed um, in our in recognition in our laws today. Mm. There was a lot of commonality between the black and Chinese communities living in the South during the late nineteenth and early to mid 20th century. How did they relate to one another? Well, they clearly had um, similar laws impacting both of their freedoms, uh, such as the citizenship, but also with segregated laws, Jim Crow, um, you know, the segregated schools, um, the capability to, um, to purchase homes in- Or even just live areas, in, you know, live white areas. neighborhoods, um, mm -hmm. you know, and as you know, Baldwin kind of mentioned or alluded to, I mean, that was the thing that was most striking to me was that cemeteries were segregated. You know, even in death, racism um, reared its ugly head. Um, and I think, you know, as you mentioned with the Chinese Exclusion Act, you know, that was another force that most people weren't aware of that was in effect, you know, impacting these Chinese families at the time. Ultimately, did making this film enable your father to open up more about his childhood as well as his family history? Yeah, well, certainly 
um, he did throughout the making of the film. Um, at the beginning of our journey, he was quite reserved. And when you hear and see his testimonial in the film, it's actually because I was not in the room. Yeah, I, I was able to unlock more of that. I'm the I'm the the magic ingredient, she's right? The, she's the favorite one. <laughs> Larissa, not all daughters in law can say that. He really he likes me more than Baldwin. <laughs> and if you ask him, he kind of gives a little smile. <laughs> no. yeah. Of course, he loves Baldwin. Um, but you know, I think when Baldwin asks, if it. it he just kind of shuts off a little bit, you know, and again, I, you know, being parents ourselves now, I, I think I understand. I think you always see your, your, your children as kids, you know, whereas he met me as an adult. So I think he respects me as an adult, <laughs> <laughs> treats you like a child Baldwin. That's probably um, and for, for him, I really felt it was therapeutic for him to share a lot of what he shared. And I was surprised. Uh, I think that was the one thing I feared the most was, you know, he was being so vulnerable and we know men of his generation, you know, are very uh, reticent to share. Uh, I think some of this, these darker corners of their emotional mind and um, for him growing up fatherless, I think it was, it was profound. Um, it, it had a profound effect on him that I, I don't think anybody knew until we took this journey to Mississippi and reconciled the past with, you know, where he is now. And I think he's, you know, he's definitely moving forward and he's much more open. Uh, you know, he's still not an open book, but he's got a few more pages open. Director and writer Larissa Lamb and producer Baldwin Chu speaking with City Lights host Lois Reitzes. Their PBS documentary, Far East, Deep South, is available on the World Channel. You can hear this interview in its entirety on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll cover Neutral Ground with documentarian C.J. Hunt. His upcoming film explores monuments, memory, and how to break up with the Confederacy. City Lights executive producer and host is Lois Reitzes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm senior producer Kim Drobes, and you can follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. Archived interviews and shows are available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. And I thank you for listening to member-supported WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.